0: It's all right. You can clap. Presbyterian, you can clap. Let's go. Yeah. That's good stuff, right there. You guys have just been rickrolled been rickrolled right there. You, some of you may not know what that is. So um, my name is Joe Davis. I'm the lead uh, teacher here in the garden. Hold on just a second while I sign into this thing. Your device is offline. Huh. That's okay. I'm going to try one more time. I'm a professional. I'm not shaking. Ain't- 3, 5, A, A. <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> that was a little bit scary for a moment. <clears throat> so um, today, my name is Joe Davis. I'm a lead teacher in the garden. Today, we're continuing this series called Move Over. Uh, it's a lectionary series that will end up in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, today, we're talking about a... Uh, story from the book of Hosea, and that's a, uh, that's a book that probably most of you have probably never even read, if you think about it. Um, I hadn't read it until this week. No, just kidding. But, um, so um, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at this story, and the name of the sermon, of course, is Never Going to Give You Up, Never Going to Let You Down. I took that picture off my slide presentation five times since yesterday afternoon, Are people going to be upset? No, they won't be upset. They know me. Are people going to be angry? No, they know me. Yes, they will. No, they won't. But Jesus will never give you up, never let you down. And so we're going to look at a story in the book of Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1 through 4, and then we're going to look at verse 9. So let me just read 1 through 4 for you. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son, the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to, to the bales, and we talked about Baal last week, and burnt offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim how to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them. And fed them, and here's basically what Hosea is saying. This is what God is saying. This is the word of the Lord given to the prophet Hosea. He's saying, "I'm the one that blessed Israel. I'm the one that chose Israel. I'm the one that kept Israel. And even as I called them more and more, <clears throat> they did more and more to be disobedient." So basically, you guys know how we do this. We like to look at the history of a passage, and we have to understand that. So I'll look at verse nine a little bit later, but. Actually, I'll look at it now. Um, Here's what he says at the end of verse 9. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. So you contrast that to what happens here then what he says in verse 9. And the other verses, by the way, talk about some of the earthly consequences of all their disobedience. But in the end, he says, I'm not going to judge them, which is pretty amazing. Okay, with that in mind, let's look at the history of the passage. The book of Hosea, not many people know about Hosea and what time it is in the nation of Israel. It's kind of one of those prophets that we skip over a lot. Basically, just to understand, this is happening around the 8th century before Christ, 8th century B.C., and it's a dramatic change going on for the kingdom of Israel. As we spoke about last week, the kingdom had been divided into northern and southern kingdoms, and what has happened here is Assyria, which was the stronghold nation, it was the main empire at the time, their main king has died, and now Assyria is ruled by weak kings, and so Assyria's grip on the region is starting to fade away. And what begins to happen is both kingdoms of Israel start to prosper. They prosper politically, they prosper militarily, they prosper economically. And they have a righteous king, Jeroboam II, who was the son of the first king, Jeroboam, who was a bad guy. But here's what happens. Jeroboam II dies, and the good times fade quickly. It's like Israel had this big upswing between David and Solomon. And then Solomon, near the reign, fell into apostasy. And so then you have the kingdoms divide, and it's going down like this. And then for a moment, there's a little tip-up And then Jeroboam II dies, and now everything's going to H-E-double hockey sticks in a handbasket. The good times are fading. What had happened was prosperity actually brought complacency. The prosperity they were enjoying brought political ambition. Well, there's a lot here. Let me get mine. Sounds a lot like America. Prosperity brought cultural corruption. Prosperity brought spiritual apostasy. And Assyria begins to encroach again in the midst of political infighting and decline of moral social fabrics in both kingdoms, the northern and the southern kingdom. And in foreign influence begins to run rampant, including more Baal worship. Remember the one that Elijah defeated? with the the burning cows and all that stuff, Israel's turning back to worship those again. And there was fertility cults and orgies running rampant. This is the nation of Israel. This is God's chosen people. And all of this results in disobedience that creates hardship. And verse 5 through 8 described that hardship. As a matter of fact, there's a guy who wrote a commentary on the prophets, particularly the book of Hosea. I love him. Edward Pusey, he's great. Here's what he says. Corruption had spread throughout the whole land. Even the places once sacred through God's revelation or other mercies to their forefathers Bethel, Gilgal, Gilead, Mizpah, Shechem were especial scenes of corruption or sin. Every holy memory was affected by present corruption. Could things be worse? The places where God had manifested himself in incredible places. Monuments to his greatness, monuments to his faithfulness, monuments to his love and compassion were now being used for Baal worship and orgies and all types of terrible, terrible things. That's the state of the nation of Israel at the time of Hosea's ministry. So Hosea has some concerns, right? First of all, He's concerned for his troubled people. He sees what's going on around him. He doesn't like it. He he sees spiritual complacency. Nobody seems to care what the rules are. Nobody seems to care what is really true, true. It's kind of what happens, basically, is there is this religious universalism that creeps in. Oh, you can worship Jehovah, but you can also worship Baal, and you can worship this, and you can worship that. Kind of what we see happening in the American church today. This universalism that says there are many roads to God. Even though Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life, he's a liar. There's other ways to go. You can worship Jesus, but you can worship other things too. And that's where we see this religious syncretism coming in. This universalism. And then you have this impending advance of surrounding nations in the midst of its moral and spiritual decline, surrounding nations, Hosea is concerned about the fact that they could come in and wipe us out at any moment. So Hosea has a message. He gives solemn warnings. He says, listen, this is not going well. This is not a good thing. These things are going to cause these terrible situations to take place for our lives and your kids' lives and their kids' lives. But these solemn warnings are also mixed with hope. The hope is that through sincere repentance, God's people would find forgiveness and reconnection to Heavenly Dad, restoration to God. So that's the historical aspect of what's happening in the book of Hosea. Are you encouraged enough yet? Isn't that bright and shiny this morning? Let's look at the theological. Obedience versus grace. I love verse 9. I will not execute my burning anger. It's not that God doesn't care about disobedience, but he refrains himself here in verse 9. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy them, for I am a God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. See, many Christians, I'm going to talk to you about two types of covenants or promises. And many Christians get confused about two things regarding their relationship with God. They're very confused about this. They confuse the concept of covenant obedience, which I'll define for you, and the concept of covenant grace. Because these things were applied to the Old Testament saints. First of all, covenant obedience. Consequences we suffer in this world as a result of our disobedience or even the disobedience of others. God had a covenant with his people and said, if you do this, and you do this, and you do this, I'll do that, that, and that. And what begins to happen is, there are times when the nation of Israel doesn't do this, this, and this, and according to the covenant of obedience, they suffer consequences. But then there's something else, that's called covenant grace. These are consequences we enjoy in this world, and after the world, in eternity, as a result of God's sovereign grace. Consequences our disobedience can never undo. Think about this now. Consequences aren't always a bad thing. Oh, you're gonna suffer the consequences. Sometimes consequences are a result of a good thing. So you have covenant obedience which says if there's disobedience, there's bad consequences. Then you have covenant grace, which says there are great consequences because of not what you do, but because of God's sovereign mercy. This is an unconditional promise that our creator pledged to guarantee its fulfillment, not because of any righteousness or obedience on our part, but because of grace distributed to us Regardless of our disobedience, regardless of our righteousness, you can clearly see how the nation of Israel experienced covenant grace time and time again. On the one hand, Israel did suffer because the nation strayed away from God's word. They strayed away from the idea that God's word was authoritative. We see that happening in the American church today where the American church wants to stray away and say, well, the word of God is just really traditions, and it's just stories, and it's not really the authoritative word of God. Wrong. And that's happening. That's what Israel was going through. Yet within that judgment, within those consequences of disobedience, God still remembered his sovereign love for his people. An affection that he had for them that was so great, an affection not based upon their worthiness of it, but based on his sovereign choice to love them in spite of them. This points, guys, this points to the Lord's grace in preserving for himself a remnant. And what is a remnant? A people, a group of people who remain faithful to him, not of their own device, not because they're superior to the people that are in the remnant, but because through his sovereign grace he preserves them and keeps them even to the point of obedience. And this remnant would heed the Lord's sovereign call and then we would turn to a place of obedience, not because they were so good, but because God was so good. So that's kind of the theological aspect. What was God doing and why did he do it? Now let's go to the devotional side of this. And there's a lot of stuff in here today. Do you ever feel like your obedience is far short of what it needs to be? I mean, let's just be vulnerable with each other right now this morning. Do you ever feel like your obedience is just never good enough? Even though you put on an act like it is, but you realize your obedience is just not consistent enough, it never goes far enough. And quite frankly, my level of obedience is spiritually depressing, it's unnerving, it's troubling. Anybody like that, or is it just me? See, what I'm going to share with you today will be counterintuitive and a little bit of a complicated concept. So please, if you will, guys, and you're going to have to, have, you're going to have to give me your attention, please keep an open mind and stick with me, because today we're going to try to undo everything you've ever been taught about obedience. I'm going to give you a whole new paradigm that I believe is biblical and freeing. So let's look at some things about obedience. First of all, obedience quits all the time. Because our obedience is often for the wrong reason. Sometimes even subconsciously it's for the wrong reason, and I'll get to that in a minute. And when our obedience quits, we do suffer temporary earthly consequences. There are things that when there's disobedience, there are issues and difficulties that we have to go through. And I'll just be real with you here. We give ample reason to God to be abandoned, don't we? I mean, even in the midst of sincere efforts at disobedience, we give ample reason why God would have cause to abandon us and give us up and let us down. But Jesus changed everything you ever thought about obedience. Because our obedience, guys, will never earn grace. And we understand that, right? But you know what other things that we don't realize about obedience in the New Testament and the the age of the church? Our obedience does not earn favor. Our obedience does not even earn blessing. Did you know that? That's not... Because listen... If you receiving blessing was based upon the fact that you had to be obedient, you ain't getting nothing for Christmas. <laughs> You're getting a lump of coal in your spiritual stocking, if you know what I'm saying. See, we look at our obedience, oftentimes in the church, as a means to gain favor with God. And when we do that, it will always follow to defeat. Actually, when our attempt at obedience is to gain favor, we actually suffer the consequences of disobedience. Because it's not through faith and grace, but through works. Because trying to please God by being better, by getting your act together, through obedience, is in itself a form of disobedience. Because you're taking away from the faith and trust you have to put in the work of Christ to make you what you are, and you're saying, I've got to do better. Stick with me. Some of you are saying, Pastor Joe, what are you talking about? Let's talk about grace. Unlike obedience, which quits a lot in our lives, grace never quits. Grace does not give up on those whom he loves. Otherwise, guys, you know what? It wouldn't be grace. It would be merit. And then obedience would be crucial to your well-being. And here's the one I think will start to clarify things for you. You ready? Grace... Should motivate obedience, not the other way around. You get what I'm saying? Your obedience doesn't motivate God to give you grace. God's grace motivates you to be obedient. It's the chicken or the egg kind of thing. Now, I know this is counterintuitive, so let me make sure that we're perfectly clear. There are benefits to obedience, but they are never relational to God. In fact, if you're really honest, we often experience blessing in the midst of disobedience. Well, I can't believe that worked. I don't deserve that. Guys, that's how scandalous how ridiculous grace is. And that's why Christianity is so different from things like radical Islam. Because Christianity says, you can never be good enough, you can only trust. And every other world religion says, you have to be good enough, or else you die. But even when we are obedient, that obedience this is important now. It's almost like I'm trying to help you learn a new state of mind. Even that obedience cannot be motivated by a desire to gain favor or connection to God. You follow me? Your obedience cannot be motivated by a desire to get closer or to gain favor. Otherwise, it's not obedience. It's actually disobedience since we are trying to earn relationship with God outside of grace. Grace. True obedience is only possible out of gratitude, out of thankfulness, after grace has been passively applied to you by God. Your obedience doesn't bring about God's grace. That's silly. Then it's not grace. Obedience doesn't achieve grace. Grace achieves obedience. In our lives. Thus giving God's sovereign grace all the credit or else we would have to brag in Ephesians 2.8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. Even that faith is a gift. Not of yourselves. Not by works or obedience or else you'd boast. There is no obedience without grace. Do you understand that? Obedience without grace is a scam. It's a sham. It's a lie. And grace will never give up. And you know what else? It also keeps us from giving up. That's what was going on with the nation of Israel. If there was ever a moment where God could have said, you know what? I'm done with you guys, I'm picking another nation. You guys are ridiculous. He said, nope. Grace overcomes disobedience. And I have a remnant which I will preserve. And I will cause to be obedient because I will continue to apply grace. (laughs) When obedience is an attempt to appease, When obedience is an attempt by you to get closer, when obedience is an attempt by you to garner favor or blessing, it will never be good enough. It will leave you frustrated, failing, empty, and defeated. But when obedience is an act of love, it will always be perfect and leave you connected, fulfilled, and blessed. So don't start with obedience, ever. Start with grace and say wow, this grace thing is ridiculous. I am so thankful for it. The least I can do is present my body a living sacrifice which God has made holy, which God has made holy and acceptable. Because grace will never give up and it will never let you down, even in the midst of your rampant disobedience. But in the end, grace, if it truly has been applied, will always bring you back to obedience. We invite you to stand as we prepare uh, to leave this place and